Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, in this episode, we'll be looking at what I think is Philip K. Dick's first masterpiece, the novella Variable Man. So Variable Man uh, was first published in Space Science Fiction in July of 1953. Um, I think that's pretty much like about a year into his publishing uh, career. Uh, you can find it in the first volume of the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick. Uh, it's about 60 pages. It's the longest work he had written up to this point, or at least the longest work he published up to that point. Um, and it's as rich, as, as dense as any of the Philip K. Dick novels, I think. Um, you know, and many of his novels tend to be kind of scattered, where they have a lot of different ideas, and they're all kind of thrown on this canvas, and sometimes the plot lines don't always line up in very satisfactory ways. They're more like these, you know, kind of orgasms of ideas. Um, but plot-wise, it doesn't always work. This novel is is tight. It's got pretty much one big idea that it's trying to convey, and it works really well. And it's one of these stories that I I, I don't know why filmmakers haven't grasped onto it um, because it's it's really I think a very filmable story. It has action. It has good ideas. It has good characters. It's it's kind of it's it's got emotion it, it's you know it'd have to be reworked a little bit for film but i think it's got a better foundation than some of these other ones they pick because often what happens with these philip kiddick short stories is when they try to make them into films they kind of stretch out these very thin one idea stories into two hours or two and a half hours and i think minority report is an example of that where they have to you know like 95 percent of that story is basically added um of the movie, I mean, is added from the story. The story just really has one thing, and even that is not really in the in the final picture. And then you have others like Next, which you know they completely throw out the source material entirely and just keep the name, uh, and that's more common than not. But this is a this is this is a filmable story, I think. Um, but anyways, let me get into this. Um, starting with the plot summary, this is actually in chapter format. I think there's five, four or five chapters. Um, but I got a plot summary for you. So we start with Terra Security Commissioner Reinhardt discussing planning for a war with the Centaurus uh, with another kind of military commander, Kaplan. So we got these two main characters, Reinhardt and Kaplan. Um, while the war is not yet being fought, it's being incessantly planned for. So we have another Cold War metaphor here. So the war is, it's, it's a Cold War, um, but they're preparing for it. And why, why aren't they fighting? Why isn't fighting taking place, even though these two planets are in conflict? Well, it's because of weapons development. As new weapon systems are being developed, the impact on the future conflict is placed in the computer systems. Then the outcome of this computer simulation is a calculation of the odds of victory for Terra. No weapons are made, they're only planned. So weapons are planned and they're put into a computer and the computer will say, well, with these weapons and with the current intelligence we have on the enemy, we have a 10% chance of victory or a 20% chance of victory. Um, so when they're that low, they just simply don't make the weapons. They just develop new weapon systems. When the odds are enough in Terra's favor, war will commence with the object of ending the Centara blockade of Terra and expansion into the galaxy. So we got, this is the war goal. The Centauran have blockaded Earth, so they can't expand. They have no frontier. So um, I, as if you've been following this series, you know that I think one of the big forgotten themes of Philip Kiddick's work, the, maybe the big idea that no one talks about, um, when writing, when writing about Philip K. Dick or talking about it or putting him into screen, is the frontier. 
right? Dick is a, a California writer. The frontier is on his mind. He's not as much of a kind of a he's not an advocate of barbarism like someone like Robert E. Howard was in his fascination with the frontier. For Dick, the frontier is the way humanity can break out of traps, um, developmental traps, uh, civilization kind of stagnation and decadence. So the frontier is always a necessity for humanity. So over time, the computed odds are slowly moving in Terra's favor due to new technologies and new developments. Um, this is giving them confidence, the war planners' confidence of victory. Reinhardt contacts Peter Shiverov, who's the head of military design. Shiverov is Polish and described as heavily individualistic, leading Reinhardt not to fully trust him or to fully believe in his commitment to the war effort. Shiverov is working on a project called Icarus. The Icarus is a ship that was originally designed for faster than light travel. However, when it re-enters normal space, the result is always a massive explosion. So it's not quite ready for development, obviously. Shivra's plan then is to redesign Icarus into just a, simply a weapon that will re-enter space into the Centauran sun, which will destroy their sun, destroy their civilization in one blow. They put this idea, they put this technology into the computer, and a result is, is the first calculation that predicts a Terran victory. Uh, at seven to six odds. Reinhardt begins to move the entire planet into war production. Kaplan sends a report to Reinhardt mentioning that the use of a research time bubble carried someone from the past into the present. This is kind of a side plot at this point. It's, it's, not, it's kind of just a mentioned in passing. It's, it's, it's an important seed, it's an important point, but it's, it's, just, it's just mentioned at this point that someone from the future has, has been moved into the present. It, it even presented almost like this is an, an, something that's happened before. It's not really a big deal. But with that, the computer calculations change. With that, the computer calculations change very dramatically, sometimes predicting a victory for Terra, other times for Centaurus. Kaplan realizes that this is caused by the quote-unquote variable man from the past. The only thing that's changed is that man's appeared from the past. Um, the machines don't know how to deal with this new factor. So one man... One person has totally upended all the planning of, of years, of, of decades, really. So that's chapter one. Chapter two. So in chapter two, we're introduced to Thomas Cole, our variable man. He's from Nebraska and is in Central Park, and he realizes that he's been carried far from his home. He is confident that he will find work. Why? Well, he's a skilled artisan. He's a jack of all trades. He's a mechanic. He's capable of taking any number of odd jobs and and doing them, right? He can figure out anything. He's a tinkerer. He's, 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 he's the perfect handyman. That's his skill. That's his superpower. His superpower is he can fix any machine, I guess. So Reinhardt, meanwhile, arrives in New York with a guy named Fredman from the Histo Research Office. That's kind of the, I guess, the historical, that's where the historians are, right? The Histo Research Office. Um, now, notice here, everything is bureaucratized. All intellectual activity is done through bureaucracies and government agencies and committed to the war effort, right? Even the historians, their only job is to really help the military planners. And they're, they're, they're trying to look for this man from the past using their old records. Cole is driving his horse-drawn cart around and slowly begins to realize how strange the town he has found himself is in is. The homes in the city look strangely modeled. The women walk around topless, which is a nice little addition. Dick may have put it in there for his 
teenage readers, but um, you know, it's it is interesting that we get transitions in morality um, over time. When he asks about work, he is directed to a government office that has never been there before, that he's never heard of before, right? It's, it's, of course, he's not been in New York before, but he, it's even the, the the offices have different names, you know. No, the kind of government agencies are different. The people he meets are amazed to see Cole's horses, which have long been extinct on Earth. Cole escapes an encounter with the director of the Federal Stockpile Conservation, escaping into a nearby town, and he learns pretty soon that it's 2128. Cole's escape is reported to Reinhardt, who is worried that until this variable man is accounted for, the war plans cannot go forward with any confidence. He later learns that Cole was spotted on the highway with a horse-drawn cart, and this was and it was bombed by airships. So the plan here is just to kill Cole, to eradicate him, and therefore to eliminate the variable man. Cole, who survived the bombing run but lost his cart, horses, and tools, is taken in by some children. And this scene is crucial. Cole learns that work is called therapy, that no no one can repair ships or things anymore. No one repairs things anymore. It's become a throwaway culture, right? And in fact, our whole war planning is based on a throwaway culture. We develop technologies. If, if they're going to win the war, they'll be applied perhaps, but usually they're just thrown away. This is all predating Dick's novel, Zapgun, which is all about this idea that you have weapons being developed only to be plowshared, that is literally turned into consumer objects, right? So the, the, threat of war is taken away by making all the weapons of war literally into like toys um, and that's a we'll get to that eventually probably you know much much later in this po in this podcast but uh the kind of the core of this idea is already set in the variable man but there's no work there's only therapy right people don't go to work they go to therapy every day cole may be unable to find work because his culture is a culture that still repairs things. The future is a culture of throwaway culture. Broken technologies are just tossed out and new ones are bought. But yet the children are amazed when Cole easily repairs a box-shaped vid sender. It's like their toy, right? And it's broken. You can imagine kids are playing, their toy breaks, and they're, they're depressed. They don't know how to fix it. And then the man comes and fixes it, and he becomes the hero. Not only is he a hero, it's completely unprecedented, right? Their parents don't do this, all right? Their parents don't try to fix their toys. They just throw them out and get new ones. So one of the children runs to tell his father, a man named Richard Elliott. And that's the end of chapter two. Chapter three, we, Richard Elliott reports the repair of the vivid sender to the authorities. And this report eventually finds its way into the hands of Reinhardt, who realizes that the repair confirms that Cole has been killed. The repair job was queer. It involved a lot of improvisation and transformation of the wiring system, but it worked. And here we see Cole's superpower, you know, you know, at play. It's, you know, it's a future technology. It's a technology Cole has no business knowing how to fix, but he's able to. Even more striking, Cole has improved the toy Viv Center. So it worked so well, it's worked out as well as the industrial ones used by the military to move items up to eight light years. So it's, he's actually improved it. He's turned it from a toy into an actual weapon, into an actual technology. It's almost as if, you run into some kids with those old-fashioned, you know, X-ray glasses, right? You know, they advertise as X-ray glasses or atomic-powered glasses. They're actually just, you know, glasses with weird lenses, right? It'd be almost like if, if those were broken and you gave it to someone and they fixed it and they made it into actual X-ray glasses. 
That, that's sort of what happened here. Reinhardt begins to understand why Cole's presence is so disruptive to the predictions. Um, not only does he introduce an uncanny skill into the world, basically a superpower, he comes from a world with a very different kind of culture. So he actually uses a German word here, Weltschlagstugen. Uh, Weltschlagstugen? I'm not sure. Um, but it, it means worldview. You can look it up. It, it, it means worldview. So though people from Cole's time come from a diff have a different like whole philosophy of life, right? And it just turns out that that world is essentially our world, right? Um, you know, a century or two removed, but, you know, still horse-drawn, you know, carriers and things. But it's, it's a world of tinkerers. It's a world of innovators and inventors and people who, it's, it's a world of kind of Edison types, right? The people who can sit down with a bunch of junk and make something, right? Which they can't do. They're bureaucrats. So meanwhile, the odds are still in disarray. Um, so Reinhardt's looking at the odds and he finds there's no stability. Not only the war effort, um, but perhaps the entire social structure can't handle the variable man. Who knows what else will be disrupted by the presence of this variable man. Sherokov wants to study the phenomenon more, but Reinhardt insists that Cole must die. It's the only way to rebalance the situation. But Sherokov has a different idea. Sherokov is able to intercept and kidnap Cole, bringing him into the laboratory, which he has under the Ural Mountains. So Sherokov kind of is like our, almost, even though he's the good guy in the story, he's got this kind of supervillain um, uh, symbolism, right? The, the, he's a Russian. It's a secret cave under, under the mountains that no one knows about. Secret, secret lab. It's, it's great. He's like the mad scientist almost. Sherokov exclaims that Cole is necessary for Terra because he brings in the possibility of creativity in a world dominated by machines. Not only can Cole's presence help transform this ethos, victory in the war is essential for human progress because Proxima Centaurus, the, war, the planet they're at war with, is a decrepit and declining empire. Um, but it's a limited Terra's ability to expand. Sherokov charges Cole with getting Icarus to work by fixing the broken control turret. This is the thing that makes it explode when it reaches the other, you know, when it leaves the hyperspace or whatever. In exchange for this labor, Sherikoff promises to return Cole to his time. Um, then we get to chapter four. Both Terra and Centaurus are busy preparing for war. Reinhardt deduces that Sherikoff has secured Cole, so he goes to Sherikoff's lab in order to place him under arrest. A battle breaks out between Sherikoff and his defensive forces and Reinhardt's security forces. Reinhardt proves triumphant. Triumphant, He reaches Icarus, but Cole is no longer there. Cole attempts to escape. Uh, at this point, he's trying to get out. But after he leaves the Sherikoff lab, one of Reinhardt's men orders a phosphorus bomb dropped in on Cole's position. Cole's body is eventually found. He's alive, but heavily injured with phosphorus burns. With Icarus complete and Cole out of the picture, the war begins. But soon after the orders are sent to the military, a new computation shows odds of 100 to 1 against Terra. After a short and brutal war, which involves the apparently failed deployment of Icarus, the war ends with Terra defeated. Um, and I, I kind of like how Dick does this, where you plan for war for centuries or decades, and the war itself is five minutes, right? This, this is the nuclear war, uh, obviously. This is the, the Cold War environment. In the final analysis, it's revealed that Cole fixed Icarus so that faster-than-light device would not explode when re-entering space-time. He fixed Icarus. But he fixed Icarus according to its original intent, which was to be a time a space-traveling um, device. Icarus therefore makes Proxima Centauri, reach Proxima Centauri, but didn't explode. 
while this led to a defeat in the war and the defeat for the military, it may also made it made conflict with Centaurus on um, avoidable. In the future, other Icarus ships could simply evade the blockade, leaving the old empire to its decline and its decadence. Terra would enjoy a renaissance of exploration as it reached out far into the into space, into the galaxy, bypassing entirely the old Centauran Empire. In the final scene, Sherecroft and Cole work on a device that will democratize Terra, creating a direct democracy which will allow each citizen to vote on issues instead of waiting for the bureaucracy and the ruling council to decide. Authoritarian figures like Reinhardt will be less likely to emerge in such a system. Cole agrees to help Sherecroft finalize the device. And that's our story. Like I said, it's, it's really a whole novel. And it's got three acts. It has everything you need to be filmed. So, Hollywood, this is the story you want, I think. So, analysis. I have a lot to say about this story. It's the longest work Dick published uh, during his prolific first two years. And before he writes his novel, Solar Lottery, it is the longest work. Um, it may be the longest science fiction piece he wrote before his novels. I, I think that's the case. He may have wrote, wrote some partial novels that weren't published. But. He was working on some mainstream novels at the time, and I don't quite know when those were written and, and sent off to publishers. But since none of them were published until after, till later in his career, it doesn't really fit what I'm saying here. It is as thematically complex as many of his novels, but the core of it, it's got that... It's, it's not a scatterbrain. It's got a core theme, and that is the relationship between humans and technology. Humanity has made everything, including the decision to make war, into a mechanical calculation. Right, so even our war plans are part of this throwaway culture. Any human autonomy is lost. Quote, the machines do only figuring for us in a few minutes that eventually we could do for ourselves. There are servants, our tools. Not some sort of gods in a temple which we go to and pray to. Not oracles which we can see into the future for us. They don't see into the future. They only make statistical predictions, not prophecies. End quote. This statement by Sherecroft summarizes the nuance in Dick's technophobia. Technology, when suppressing human agency, is a destructive force, a dangerous force, and Dick doesn't want anything to do with it. When used as a tool, though, it can be liberating. In this way, Dick has much in common with the 20th century anarchist interpretation of technology, which sees it essentially as value neutral, but can be used in multiple ways. It can be liberatory or it can be an oppressive force. The hero, hero of Variable Man, is a jack of all traits. He's the only person in early 22nd century Terra who has the ability to be flexible. He has the flexibility necessary to rework technologies, to solve technological problems. Right? Everyone else has to start from scratch if something doesn't work. Go back to the drawing board. He's the one who can take something and say, if we just move these wires around or rethink this. He doesn't even understand the science behind it. He's the tinkerer. He's able to figure things out just intuitively. This is something that's mostly lacking in the world. Entirely lacking, actually. People can design weapons or consumer goods based on plans, but no more than that. Deviating from plans or finding creative alternatives is beyond the capacity of the masses of technocrats. It's even beyond the consumers. As any kid knows, you can take a toy and repurpose it, right? You can turn, uh, well, I guess you've got a lot of creative toys like Legos and things, but you can turn, you know, a, a toy gun into, uh, I don't know, some kind of prop for a, a play. I, there's a lot of different ways you can, um, you know, use toys. 
I guess that maybe making maybe taking your parents' exercise bands and using them into tie up your friends and a play act, uh, you know, a game of confinement and um, escape. Anyways, I, I'm kind of fumbling for a, uh, an example here, but you probably get my point that you know I'm not a kid anymore. That's why I can't be a creative. But you know, kids are quite good at this, but no one in this future is. All right, they can only take run things according to plan, according to the, the according to their instructions, according to the rule book. Cole comes from the early 20th century. He's from a period when people had a more healthy relationship with technology. Notice he's not from Dick's time. He's not a 1950s kind of radio repairman. We'll get those characters later on. He's, he's from the early 20th century. So Dick's already suggesting we're moving away from this period of creativity and repurposing and, and tinkering. Quote, before the war began, this was a unique period. There was a certain vitality, a certain ability. There was a, this was an incredible period of growth and discovery. Edison, Pasteur, Burbank, the Wright brothers, inventions and machines. People had an uncanny ability with machines, a kind of intuition about machines, which we don't have, end quote. So even with this time period, I, I think we almost got a steampunk story here if we want to make it that way. And maybe that's probably one way that the story could be you know, translate into film as, as a steampunk. The theme here, the setting wouldn't be so steampunk, but this guy would bring in the steampunk ethos into a, into a different world. Another consequence is the loss of individuality. Sherrocroft and Cole are kindred spirits because they both believe in the importance of the individual over the institution. People no longer have jobs or employment, but attend therapy. This is one of the most interesting euphemisms for labor I've ever, ever seen in science fiction. Um, but it's also one of the most difficult to interpret. Apparently, work is seen as an essential part of a well-balanced and regulated life. Is that like a machine, right? You need to oil a machine every day to keep it, or work a machine every day to keep it fresh. Humans are the same way. Cole is seen as odd because he seeks out work to make a living. He's not doing it for therapy. Now, maybe it's all brainwashing, right? Now, I, I suppose most jobs could be reinterpreted into things that we find pleasurable, right? Um, most jobs that people do and don't like at the workplace are can be are done by people for pleasure, right? So someone may work at a furniture factory and hate it because the labor is so degraded and tech, you know mechanized and uncreative, but that same person may have a workbench and enjoy making tables and, and benches and things um, because they're, his whole mind is in the productive capacity. You know, he's, he's fully engaged in the productive process, not just a part of the machine. By repurposing work as therapy, you can, you can make people go there, right? And we might see aspects of this. I mean, there are web like articles on the internet of like meditating at work or getting your exercise in at work or, or dealing with work in this way or another way. You know, in a sense, you, you endure work, you survive work by making it into something that's not. So, I, I, you know, there, there's more to say about this, but it would be an uh, interesting idea to explore uh, in other stories. Yet another consequence of human dependence on machines was the replacement of democratic institutions with an authoritarian technology, or an authoritarian technocracy, I mean. The odious nature of this system is reflected in the character of Reinhardt. Uh, he's not given a first name everywhere, but unlike the very American name of Thomas Cole, Reinhardt reminds us of the old world, of its values and institutions. Reinhardt is brilliant. 
and quickly sizes up coal and the danger he poses, but it's also hierarchical, it's intolerant of dissent or any breakdown in order, and it's violent, it solves problems through murder. Cole, on the other hand, embraces the values of cooperation, self-sacrifice, and autonomy, the very values that a well-functioning democracy depends on. He is one of Dick's visions of the yeoman farmer in the industrial age. Now, related to the question of stagnation is Dick's belief in the importance of creativity, exploration, and cultural rebirth to the survival of civilization. Proxima Centaurus is an old empire, long past its prime and no longer capable of expanding even though it can still defeat the comparably upstart humans. Terra is at risk of the same fate for two reasons. One, the reliance on machines, and the second, the end of the frontier. The individualistic Sherikov realizes the necessity of expansion for cultural revival. Quote, Terra is hemmed in on all sides by the ancient Centauran Empire. It's been out there for centuries, thousands of years, but no one knows how long. It's old, crumbling, rotting corrupt and venal, but it holds most of the galaxy around us, and we cannot break out of the soul system. We must win the war against the Centaurus. We've waited and worked for, as long, for a long time for this. The moment we can break out and get room among the stars for ourselves. The necessity of the frontier informs much of Dick's early works, including the novel The World Jones Made. It's in Mr. Starship and, and other works, but... It's key, and I'm going to keep coming back to this. If, if this podcast can have one purpose, it can be to revive the importance of the frontier in Dick's work. I'll be happy if people come away from this series understanding how important the frontier is in Dick's conception and geography. His conception of, of humanity and his geography of the worlds he builds. Now, in The Variable Man, Dick critiques the culture of waste that he saw building up around him in the early 1950s America. Thomas Cole looks back to a time even before Dick's when jack-of-all-trades skilled workers still had control over the technologies in use, before scientific management, before Taylorism, before the assembly line. By the early 22nd century, this autonomy of humanity over machine had ended. He shows that it was not only the question of autonomy, though. It's one of waste, or we'll use a Dickian term here, kippleization. Uh, kipple is junk. It's... It's the kind of the waste product of society. And I, I think Kipple can sometimes mean actually people can be Kippleized in Dick's novels, leftover, wasted, unnecessary. In his original application in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Kipple just kind of means the junk that builds up, right? The clutter that builds up. Um, but I think it can be applied to many different things. Um, and here we see one, of, see one of the first examples of Kippleization. We see the entire Terran war effort is based on this principle of almost instant planned obsolescence. The minute a technology is developed, it's, it's thrown away. Weapon systems aren't even built. They're only planned and tested. Immediate planning for the next generation of weapons begins. This is not terribly far from what takes place in the zap gun, where weapons are plowed shared into consumer technologies. Dick seems to be making a point about the essential value of production for use sake. The entire state structure is devoted to production for potential use only. The result of this is a great waste of human effort going nowhere. All right, that's that's the big themes of of the story. Um, but let's talk about the variable man himself. Um, but the focus on the character of the variable man, who we actually don't meet till like the second part of the story, till the second chapter. He's not even there at the beginning. 
And he's not even a major character. I mean, it's Reinhardt's and... and Reinhardt and Sherikoff, yeah. Reinhardt and Sherikoff's game for most of the story. Uh, Cole's almost there as just a device, but I, I think we can take a closer look at Cole and the importance of his character in Dick's worldview. He's an early 20th century mechanic who was accidentally sent into the future, right? So what is special about Cole? And I, what I would say is special about Cole is that he is an embodiment of human-centered and human scale technology, right? And he's the antithesis to the automated, gargantuan, massive, systemic machine, right? So we got two, the, the machine is, I'm getting this kind of from Thomas Mumford, right? The machine, the whole system of technology, the integrated system, the thing that connects us all together, the, you know, you turn on the light switch and you're connected to coal mines and power plants and bureaucracies and all this infrastructure, right? this kind of technology that's out of our hands, right? It has to be run by bureaucracies, it has to be run by systems. Um, it's the kind of the whole inf technological infrastructure of a society, if you will. Versus a human scale technology, the technology that we can affect, right? The thing that we can fix, the guy who can repair his own car, I suppose, or the, the guy who, you know, isn't emboldened to repair shops or manufacturers. The guy who can fix his own home, right? The, the frontiersmen almost, if you want to go back to there. Uh, Cole is from the West. He's from Nebraska. That, I think, is the core importance of Cole as a, as a figure in Dick's fiction. It's hard not to see the variable man as an inversion of Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Uh, in the Twain novel, a mechanic from New England goes back in time to the early Middle Ages where he applies technology in modernizing part of Arthurian England. And over the course of that novel, education, moral reform, anti-slavery thought, and material progress are all introduced. Alongside these positive developments, you find a growing automation, mechanization, and technological violence. In one of the final scenes of the Connecticut Yankee, he is trapped in his own machine, surrounded by the dead bodies of the defeated aristocracy. All the knights of the round table are dead. And while the novel is clearly targeting the pretensions of the aristocracy, it also warns against the trajectory of technology. And another thing, by the way, Hollywood, why haven't you grabbed on to Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court rather than this Guy Ritchie nonsense that you put out? I mean, there's your King Arthur story. Trust me. But anyways, in contrast, Thomas Cole enters a world where technology has already led to automation. We're kind of where Connecticut Yankee ends up, right? And it's the mechanic who goes to fix that, to repair the damage. So it's, it's almost a, a mirror image of, of Twain's story. Technology has already led to automation. It's already destroyed democracy with the rise of technology. It's sapped human creativity. Cole, by bringing in the values of the early 20th century, including human optimism about technology, helps to shatter stagnation that the mature machine created. In the novella, The Variable Man, humanity prepares for this war against Proxima Centaurus by using great computers to tell them when to strike. Because, you know, strike when the odds are best, right? The now, World War II, at least from the American side, was fought as a, as a war by bureaucrats. And go back and rewatch A Fog of War, the Robert McMinera movie, and he, he goes into this in great detail, how decisions were made based on, you know, actuarial tables and, you know, percentage of damage done by a bomb at one height versus another. He's very good on that. Um, war was increasingly being fought by bureaucrats and planners.
Striking at Centaurus is crucial because the old emperor has prevented human expansion, of course. Cole is accidentally brought into this future and throws the plans of the Terran state in disarray. One man is able to disrupt the plans of a whole bureaucracy. And Cole is of another age. He's of a different worldview. And that's words given us directly, specifically. He's an age of democracy, of technological optimism, of skill, and of generalism, when generalism was valued, not, you know, specialization. This is in a sharp contract to the future technology, where you have specialization, automation, and pessimism. His uncanny ability to fix technologies, even if he does not fully understand them, contradicts the ethos of the age that prefers to throw away what is broken. Cole is recruited by an individualist scientist to help complete a weapon that promises to destroy the Centauran homeworld. He fails to perfect the weapon, and Terra loses the war. But this is a good thing. The reason the weapon called Icarus worked was because faster-than-light travel was faulty. Cole fixed this, turned Icarus into what it was originally intended to be, a device that allows humans to bypass Centaurus altogether. Right? In fact, the de defeat in the war kind of broke humanity out of its trap. Right. Now, what has technology done to humans? Well, I already kind of went over this. Right? Sherikoff explains this. Humans are uncreative. They're ruled by technocrats. Uh, computers design technologies. Uh, they have very limited ability in repairing or improving anything. The blueprints are the boss. The transformation of faster-than-light device uh, into the Icarus weapon is the only example we see where humans are able to deviate from prearranged plans. So only if it's destructive. Of course, it's the free-thinking Sherikoff who makes this pivot. Sherikoff, like the variable man, is of another age. The technocratic authoritarian head of the secret police, Reinhardt, fears him. Quote, That big Polish scientist was an individualist, refusing to integrate himself with society. Independent, atomistic in outlook. He held concepts of the individual as an end, diametrically contrary to the accepted organic state, Welschnitt. End quote. Technology, by sustaining a technocracy as a ruling elite, has also destroyed democracy. Decisions not made by machines are made by a small ruling council of specialists. Sherikoff describes the transfer of decision-making powers to machines and technocrats, comparing them to the use of oracles. And sibyls are something Dick is going to be very interested in in later works. Thomas Cole arrives in the, to the year 2128 riding a horse-drawn cart filled with tools. He is the master artisan, master mechanic. He performed various odd jobs and was proud of his ability to intuitively know how technology worked, how to fix it, how to improve it. In two clear examples in the text, Cole, without knowing the science behind the technology, fixed and improved a device. First, he repaired a child's toy used to transport items short distances. He not only fixed it, but he made it into a professional grade transporter. The second example is the Icarus itself. He uses his hands and his mind to work with technologies and does not rely on computers or machines or blueprints or plans of any type to guide his work. Reinhardt understood the moral thrust that Cole posed to the state and the system that he owned his entire identity. He explains that he came from a time when humans really believed that technology could be harnessed for human gain. It may seem rather strange that Reinhardt suggests that it is preferable that the machines and the technocrats rule rather than the dreamers and tinkerers. One reason Reinhardt feels such sentiment cannot be afforded is that war demands absolute devotion to the state and planning. It's, it's a fascist state, right? 
But Dick makes clear that Reinhardt is of his time and never in his life has he considered that the old ways were preferable. No more than people of Cole's age thought it would be admirable to return to the medieval religious superstition. In the final pages of the novel, novella, we see a strong suggestion that Dick associated the worldviews and abilities of Thomas Cole with democracy. In the final project, Sherrocroft works on, with Cole's aid, a device that will allow democracy to by giving everyone a chance to avoid, vote on their issues from their home, right? So the, the idea of the in-home voting machine, where everyone can just vote on any issue in real time. We don't need, then, legislatures. We can have direct democracy through technology. So Dick's not an entirely hostile to technology. So in conclusion, I'm going to end on, uh, stop this episode on The Variable Man in a moment. Um, but so just in conclusion, The Variable Man reveals the basic outlines of Dick's views of technology that are actually quite positive. The novella suggests that Dick was not an absolute technophobe. His major fear was automation and the evaporation of human agency and control over technology. Like Peter Kropotkin, Dick believed that technology that made human beings more free was a good thing. Works such as Autofact, The Great Sea, and The Gun all largely come out of the same period as The Variable Man, but they present Dick's negative vision of technology. Technology as the destroyer, as the automation run amok. With Thomas Cole, however, we find a positive vision of, of technology that conforms to human needs and can be manipulated by people without the exclusionary specialized knowledge of the technocracy. If a tinkerer or a handyman cannot repair technology, perhaps Dick warns us we should consider if we're better off without it in the long run, right? And I also want to imagine putting Cole in Autofac or the Great Sea or the gun and to see what they could have done with them. Perhaps he could have turned the Great Sea into a, a companion. Maybe he could have turned the Autofact into something that actually made the food that the people needed to survive. Um, and maybe we can think about that when we get to those stories in the near future. So that does it with... Uh, the Variable Man, again, I think it's one of Dick's greatest stories, uh, one of his masterpieces, and one of the most important works in his early career. Uh, so I urge you to read it if you haven't yet. Um, uh, what did you think of The Variable Man if you read it? Uh, I'd love to have your opinions. Do you agree with uh, what I said? Do you have different interpretations? Uh, please email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com, and I will get back to you and maybe even read your letter um, on air. Um, rate, subscribe, share. Please, please help spread news about this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time as we continue reading through the works of Philip K. Dick. I'm handy with